Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. On March 11th of last year, the World Health Organization officially declared the novel coronavirus, known as COVID-19, a global pandemic. In the months that followed, national governments around the world would impose draconian lockdowns, mandates, and other public health measures, many of which are unprecedented in modern history. But while our reaction to the current pandemic might be novel, humanity's struggle against deadly pathogens is anything but. In this special edition of Hold the Line, we delve into the history of the worst pandemics in history, from the Black Death to COVID-19. Welcome to this special edition of Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. Worldwide, there have been an estimated 219 million cases of COVID-19, with over 4.5 million people losing their lives to the disease, 690,000 here in the U.S. alone. That's a scale of death from a pathogen that hasn't been seen in over a century. But just as important as crunching the numbers is putting them in perspective. This isn't mankind's first dance with the devil. Pandemics have been part of our lives since the beginning of recorded history. The word itself is derived from the ancient Greek, pan meaning all and demos meaning people. In other words, a disease that strikes indiscriminately without regard to borders or class or anything else. The origins of the word are fitting considering the first recorded pandemic took place in the city-state of Athens around 430 BC. As Spartans lay siege to the city during the height of the Peloponnesian War, the Athenian people noticed a strange sickness spreading amongst the populace. Fever, inflamed eyes, coughing, vomiting, ulcers. Before long, an estimated 75 to 100,000 people had died from what came to be known as the Plague of Athens. That's as much as two-thirds of the entire population of the city. In the subsequent millennia, the Western world would face more pandemics. The Antonine Plague, the Plague of Cyprian, the Plague of Justinian. Then came the Black Death, the great mortality of the mid-14th century, which led to the death of between 30 to 60% of the entire population of Europe. In more recent history, there was the Spanish flu, which is estimated to have killed up to 100 million people worldwide. Each pandemic left a unique mark on the world, leading to social, economic, and even spiritual upheaval. During pandemics past, religious leaders would take to the pulpit to preach about how the pestilence had been brought about by man's wickedness. The ravages of disease were surely a sign of the Almighty's judgment, they said. 
Of course, the advent of modern medicine has changed everything, right? But has it really? Seems our sensibilities haven't changed as much as we would like. Just listen to some recent statements from the new governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. We are not through this pandemic. I wished we were, but I prayed a lot to God during this time. And you know what? God did answer our prayers. He made the smartest men and women, the scientists, the doctors, the researchers, he made them come up with a vaccine. That is from God to us. And we must say, thank you, God. Thank you. And I wear my vaccinated necklace all the time to say, I'm vaccinated. All of you. Yes, I know you're vaccinated. You're the smart ones. But you know there's people out there who aren't listening to God and what God wants. You know this. You know who they are. I need you to be my apostles. I need you to go out and talk about it and say, we owe this to each other. We love each other. Be my apostles. Spread the word. A religiosity from a political leader here about how to deal with a pandemic. Almost like the state is in place of God when it comes to the way that we have been told to face up to COVID-19. The state has overreached dramatically, has shut down churches, businesses, told people to stay in their homes. There's really nothing that is beyond the reach of the government during this COVID-19 pandemic, at least according to people that we refer to often as the Fauciites. Those adherents of Dr. Anthony Fauci of the NIH, who believe that whatever mitigation strategy comes from the bureaucracy in this country must be pursued, and anyone who questions it or tries to stop it is an evildoer, a person of low moral character, somebody who should be punished, somebody who should be driven out from society, does all feel quite religious, doesn't it? It also is a reminder of how much we can see the very freedoms that we take for granted change in the blink of an eye, and how long will this last afterwards? Do we have a society now in which people will view health and health policy entirely differently going forward? And how will that empower the state at the expense of individual freedom and liberty? These are all questions we have to look at and ask. And maybe some of the answers lie in the past. We've got a great lineup of guests coming to discuss the history of pandemics. Coming up next, we'll speak to historian John Aberth about arguably the worst pandemic in human history, the Black Death. Stay with us. It went by many names, the pestilence, the great mortality, the Black Death. No matter what we choose to call it, the first bubonic plague outbreak that struck Europe, Asia, and North Africa in the mid-14th century was arguably the worst pandemic in human history. According to estimates, the plague claimed up to 200 million lives between 30 and 60% of the entire population of Europe. But its impact went far beyond the lives it cut short. The Black Death brought with it major social change, radical religious movements, and economic upheaval that would alter the course of history. Joining me now is the author of The Black Death, A New History of the Great Mortality in Europe, historian John Aberth. Uh, John, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So let's start at the beginning. Where did the bubonic plague originate? How did it spread so far and wide? I just thought the Black Death originated in Central Asia, uh, probably in the Qinghai uh, Plateau, 
in um, what is now Tibet. Uh, and it is thought to have spread along the Silk Road uh, from the east to the west, um, prob probably um, arriving at the Black Sea port of Kaffa, now Theodosia. And from there, uh, Genoese merchants um, probably carried the Black Death back to Europe uh, beginning in 1347. And then from then on, it spread throughout Europe uh, until 1353 during the first outbreak. What were the symptoms I mean, and, and what do we actually know now about this disease? It was, it was a bacteria. Um, what, what do we know about how this all went? Uh, yes, that's right. It was caused by a bacteria called Yersinia pestis, um, and it is um, primarily spread by the bite of a flea. Um, the flea gets infected by um, feeding on septicemic rodents, um, such as rats, in Europe. And uh, once the flea is infected, then um, when the rats all die from plague, the fleas then bite the next host available, and that would be humans. And that's how the plague is spread from rats to humans, what's called a panzudic. And um, uh, then when the uh, human is bitten by a flea, um, the typical symptoms are swellings of the lymph nodes in the place closest to where the flea is bitten, the victim, uh, such as the groin, if you were bitten on the legs or the armpit or the neck, if you were bitten on the chest or the head. Um, how, and, how high is the mortality rate to untreated at the time? I mean, if we go back and look at what the, what the numbers were like, we have some sense of what, what the chances were if somebody was infected with bubonic plague that they would actually succumb to it. Yeah, that was based on, you know, modern data from the third pandemic of plague, which uh, broke out at the turn of the 20th century in Asia. Uh, it is thought, you know, there was 60 to 90 percent of those who contracted plague would die from it. Um, if you got a uh, mnemonic septicemic plague, that was 100% fatality. Uh, and mnemonic plague is spread by breathing or by droplets from person to person. Uh, septicemic uh, it was probably a uh, direct invasion of the bacteria into the bloodstream. And from then it rapidly proliferates and, and kills the, the victim. You also wrote a book called Doctoring the Black Death, chronicling efforts by physicians at the time to treat the plague. How did they go about treating victims? Uh, and was there any success? And, and did they learn from their mistakes? It's one of the arguments I make in my book is that uh, doctors did come up with a new paradigm to explain the bubonic plague because the Black Death um, was so indiscriminate, it affected nearly everybody. Um, and it was um, spread throughout the whole world. Also, the Black Death was very fatal. It could kill very quickly within days. So they came up with a explanation called, that I call the poison thesis, that the disease was caused by a poison that directly invaded the body and then multiplied within the body and went to the heart and killed it quickly. Uh, and this was in contrast to the uh, humoral complexional theory, which said that, you know, disease depended on individual complexion, whether one was sanguine or phlegmatic, choleric or melancholic. 
Um, so that was a, a different approach that entailed a different way of treating plague, usually through drug therapies such as Theriac that directly, uh, uh, you know, uh, fought the poison instead of simply evacuating the humors from the body. And did the arrival of plague in a port create a kind of mass panic scenario? Were there what we would consider today lockdowns, for example? What were some of the, to borrow uh, uh, from our current moment, mitigation measures that were put in place for the Black Death? Well, the term quarantine comes from Carento, 40 days, uh, which was first implemented during the 15th century in um, Ragusa and then in Venice. Uh, so that was a, um, you know, basically uh, putting people on an island separate from everyone else for 40 days, uh, you know, assuming that they would either die or recover during that time. Uh, so that was, you know, a, a method of, of trying to isolate plague victims and prevent them from infecting everyone else because they did believe that plague was contagious. Uh, now, we, know not, we not, now know that bubonic plague is not spread directly from person to person. It's spread from the bite of a flea from rats. But, um, you know, they did have a concept of contagion and tried to uh, respond accordingly. But, um, you know, it depended on how well they implemented, you know, those quarantine measures and other plague control measures. Well, I mean, were, were fleas in, in this, in this uh, you, know, re, re, you know, medieval and then Renaissance periods uh, that we're talking about, were fleas uh, present the way we almost think of mosquitoes in some areas today? I mean, I feel like a lot of people would say, how, how often were humans coming into contact with fleas? It mu must have been a pestilence all, all on its own. Yeah, fleas were a lot more prevalent, uh, you know, uh, you have to understand, they, they, they actually did some experiments in India uh, during the third pandemic uh, with um, some mud houses that were probably very similar to the type of housing you get in the Middle Ages. And they found that a person entering a house that had, um, you know, some plague victims in it, uh, that person would get uh, dozens of fleas within seconds of entering the house. And, and some houses were infested with hundreds of, of fleas. Once the rats all died, then the fleas left the rats and searched, searched for new victims to bite. So you, you get, you know, at times uh, dozens or even hundreds of fleas um, loose in the house. And of course, you know, that made for a perfect storm yeah. uh, to infect people, anyone who entered that house. Pretty rough. Or who was um, tell, tell me this, John, before we, before we let you go. I mean, how, what are some of the most enduring effects of the Black Death and how it changed the world and society? Well, that's, um, you know, a complicated question. But generally, uh, one of the biggest effects was economic. Um, you know, the plague, because it culled so much of the population, 50 to 60 percent of the population just in the first outbreak in 1348, 1349, uh, that meant there were, you know, far fewer workers available. And that meant laborers had more bargaining power to bargain for higher wages, um, for better living standards, for freedom from serfdom, for example. Serfdom basically dies by the end of the 15th century, uh, largely as a result of the Black Death, because you know, uh, lords had to attract serfs to work their lands uh, because there were a lot fewer of them in the wake of the plague. Uh, 
So it really changed society in fundamental ways because of the the tremendous bargaining power uh, that was now available. The uh, basically the shock effect of, of of the supply side shock of so so fewer workers available. Thanks so much, John. Yeah, thank you. While the Black Death was arguably history's most deadly pandemic, the effects of another more recent outbreak are still felt to this very day. Coming up, we'll take a look at the 1918 influenza pandemic, better known as the Spanish flu. Stay with us. In 1918, the world would face yet another pandemic of biblical proportions. Although the first known cases were recorded in Fort Riley, Kansas, the new disease would become known as the Spanish flu. Worldwide, the number of deaths was estimated to be at least 50 million, with about 675,000 occurring here in the United States. Joining now is the New York Times bestselling author of The Great Influenza, the history, or the story rather, of the deadliest pandemic in history, John Barry. John, thanks for being with us. Uh, not exactly a pleasure talking about <laughs> this subject, but but uh, thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, we appreciate the historical background. We need to know how things have gone in the past to get a sense of how we can go in the future here. There's still a lot of controversy out there about where the Spanish flu came from. Obviously, in the COVID-19 context, there's controversy about where that came from, too. But on Spanish flu, what are the best guesses to the origin? We mentioned in the, in, in the introduction here there were cases at Fort Riley, but where do we think it actually started? Well, there are four leading uh, competitors. Uh, there's a very good virologist who thinks it started in France in uh, around 1915, 1916. Uh, the United States and Kansas is a, is a competitor. Uh, so are China and Vietnam. I'd put my own money on China, although oddly enough in the, in the book, I. I uh, strongly advanced the U.S. hypothesis, but since the book came out, I, I've seen some more research that led me to change my mind. Can you tell us about the, what is the Chinese hypothesis of the origins of the Spanish flu, just so uh, our viewers know? Well, the, the main reason I changed my mind is that uh, in 1918, Hong Kong uh, did not suffer very much, and they had pretty good data. Uh, and that strongly suggests to me that People had immune protection because they had been exposed to the virus before. Uh, there was also an outbreak of, uh, uh, which actually, I, personally, I discount, uh, of what was diagnosed at the time as pneumonic plague. And uh, frankly, I think they were probably accurate on that. I doubt that that was a progenitor of the influenza pandemic because back then they, they were good bacteriologists. They knew what pneumonic plague was and they could culture the organism and so forth. So just so everyone knows, I mean, what were the, the symptoms of the Spanish flu? I mean, how, how quickly did it uh, have an onset and what was the mortality like? Well, it, it starts out exactly like influenza, seasonal influenza today, and the overwhelming percentage of the cases uh, continue like that. I mean, influenza, unlike COVID, is much faster incubation rate. Uh, people often can precisely date and, you know, timing practically when they first feel the symptoms because it can hit you like a truck. Uh, but, you know, respiratory symptoms. However, the 
when the disease progressed to uh, lethal form, some of those symptoms could be really pretty scary. Uh, in the book, I quote a, a, an army physician who said that people were cer- turning so dark blue from lack of oxygen, he had difficulty uh, discriminate, distinguishing African-American soldiers from Caucasian soldiers. That, of course, spread rumors of the Black Plague. And in fact, the U.S. intelligence report from, from Europe, uh, when that lethal second wave, it came in waves as COVID did, uh, when the lethal second wave started, U.S. intelligence actually said they're calling it influenza, but it's actually the Black Death of the Middle Ages. It wasn't, it was influenza. The scariest symptom was was uh, not entirely common, but common enough. And you could bleed from not just your, your nose and mouth, but from your eyes and ears. That's, uh, that's pretty scary. Uh, Who is primarily some... at risk? I mean, one thing we've seen a lot with the COVID-19 pandemic is risk stratification. With the Spanish flu, who was, uh, who suffered the most in terms of demographic? It was exactly opposite COVID-19. The people most at risk were young children under 10, particularly under age of five. Probably the second group that was most at risk was otherwise healthy young adults aged like 18 to uh, 45 or 50. Uh, And those were the main peaks. People who are over 65, uh, well over 90% of the excess mortality was younger, younger than 65, uh, which again suggests that there was a virus that circulated very similar, but not particularly lethal. And uh, so it wasn't really noted in history, but it provided immune protection to the elderly. How was the disease treated? I mean, were there any major medical advancements specifically against uh, influenza, even just with the symptoms? Or were there things that were tried that helped advance medicine later on? Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Uh, There was no real treatment, uh, nor is there really a good treatment today for for COVID. Uh, A lot of the deaths did come from bacterial pneumonia. They tried a lot of vaccines. They Number one, they didn't even know what a virus was in 1918, much less did they identify the influenza virus. They were good bacteriologists. And a lot of the deaths came from secondary bacterial infection, which today is still very dangerous in influenza. Uh, they did develop some vaccines against that. Uh, and if you get a, a vaccine against bacterial pneumonia today, which I recommend highly 
particularly anybody over the age of, of 60. Uh, that is a straight line descendant of what was developed back then. Uh, in terms of, there were major scientific advances that I think uh, emerged because of the pandemic. But that pandemic moved, one of the biggest difference between 1918 and today is speed. And the 1918 pandemic moved through the world in a matter of weeks, really, uh, much in much shorter period of what we're dealing with. And those scientific advances uh, didn't occur until later. For example, the definition of a virus didn't come till 1925, but that influenza really focused the work of scientists on identifying uh, that. And probably the most important discovery that you would link pretty directly to uh, the influenza pandemic didn't come until 1944. But that was that uh, DNA actually carries a genetic code. Uh, you may be familiar with the saying in basic science, you shoot an arrow into the air and wherever it lands, you paint the target. Uh, so the scientist Oswald Avery, a, a tremendous figure in, in world science and a major figure in, in, in the book, is a guy who concluded that DNA carried the genetic code. Very controversial finding at the time, as a matter of fact. And how did the Spanish flu come to an end? I mean, were there public health measures that anybody thought were effective, or did it just essentially run its course and eventually burn its way through the population? Well, both. I think uh, one of the lessons from 1918 was that public health measures, such as we have applied this time around, you know, closings and so forth, social distancing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, those things worked in 1918, uh, and, and of course we know they work today. Uh, but that, that didn't kill the pandemic. Uh, it, it did end naturally. Uh, people developed immunity and the virus mutated. Uh, I think both things occurred. Uh, in 1918, there were uh, three waves. The first wave was, oddly enough, not very lethal and not very transmissible. The second wave was both highly lethal and highly transmissible, much more transmissible than the first wave. Then a third wave occurred and it was considerably less lethal than the second wave, uh, but you didn't have any immune protection. If you got sick in, in either the first or second wave, the third wave virus didn't care. It was another variant, escaped the immune protection, but it, it wasn't as lethal. There's this kind of ongoing parallel pass of the immune system recognizing the virus and being better able to protect against it. And, and the virus mutating to, in a more gentle, you know, it probably, we don't know this for a fact, but it probably traded the ability to escape the immune system in for not being as lethal. Uh, and by 1921, the same virus, but a variant had emerged. Uh, this, it was this just ordinary seasonal influenza. And, John, uh, if, thank you for sharing the historical background and expertise here, and uh, we appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back with more of this special edition of Hold the Line.
It's been called the first pandemic of the 21st century. The 2002-2004 outbreak of severe acute respiratory syndrome, better known as SARS, quickly spread from continent to continent after initially being detected in Guangdong province in China. Ultimately, the illness would impact at least 29 countries, with over 8,000 being infected and around 800 dying from the disease. Although the scale of SARS as an outbreak was nowhere near that of COVID, it was a harbinger of things to come. Like our current outbreak, the actions of China played a large role in the disease's spread. The nation's secrecy lies and failure to address the issue while it was still in its infancy ultimately cost lives. Joining me now is the author of The Coming Collapse of China, Gordon Chang. You can follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, thanks so much. Thank you, Buck. So the initial SARS outbreak was not too dissimilar in some ways from the COVID-19 outbreak. Take us back to 2002. What got all this going? How'd it go down? Well, this was a zoonotic transfer. In other words, it was from one mammal to another. And here they traced it to bats in Yunnan province in the south. And by the way, most diseases in China start from the south, either Guangdong or Yunnan. Um, and this was a transfer uh, that just occurred naturally. But we got to remember that the SARS epidemic was actually fueled by accidental lab leaks, um, at least two of them. So although this was a natural disease, um, nonetheless, it was uh, propelled by mistakes made in Chinese laboratories. And when you say that the, uh, some of these diseases come from those regions of China, is, that, is it just because of interaction between humans and livestock on a very broad scale? Why do some of these diseases seem to start in China? That's a great question, which I don't think that epidemiologists actually know the answer, though um, people have speculated that it is because there are humans and livestock in very close proximity in conditions which are not sanitary. And many of those conditions are in southern China. But for one reason or another, that is where this stuff comes from. Now, what was China's initial reaction to the uh, SARS outbreak back in 2002? It was denial. It was silence. Um, this disease spread because people were not warned. And, and this is a general sickness of the Communist Party itself. I mean, the party is a, a conspiratorial organization. It started out that way. It governs that way. So we shouldn't be surprised that we have this, you know, that this disease would spread and uh, get beyond control because of Communist Party governance. How did China work to stymie international efforts to combat SARS back in 2000, uh, 2003? Well, it, it did what it did now, which is not talk to people, uh, not cooperate with health authorities around the world. And that made it difficult. Um, with these diseases, if you don't catch, um, catch them at a very early stage, then they uh, get to a point where you really can't control them anymore. And you just have to wait for them, for the most part, to die out. And that's exactly what happened with SARS, where Chinese officials denied that there was the disease. And it spread in China to a point where uh, people from China carried it around the world, especially to other countries in Asia. Was there any effort by the international community to uh, push back on China as a result of this? I mean, was there ever any accountability for any of the actions around this SARS outbreak that could have, uh, were there any efforts, I should say, that, that could have had 
an impact on what China would do in the future, especially as we know we're now in the COVID era, people look back and say, how did we not do more? Yeah, nobody imposed any costs on China for its behavior in SARS. And I think that Chinese leaders learned a lesson that uh, they could act with impunity in the future. And we saw them act um, in ways which were even less responsible with COVID-19. And I think that basically Chinese leaders thought that, well, they got away with it before, why not try it again? And so these do have consequences. The failure of the international community to hold China to standards that um, we hold each other to. And so these international bodies that are supposed to monitor these things, I mean, it feels like, Gordon, there was a huge warning here from what happened with SARS that now in retrospect was a missed opportunity to take more action. With the World Health Organization and, and some of these, these bodies that have lost, it seems, a lot of credibility in the public eye recently, if you go back and look at the, the era of SARS, were, some, were these deficiencies in terms of international monitoring and, and pressure to try to be proactive and have some accountability on this, should this stuff all have been known back in 2002, 2003, that there were these deficiencies? Yeah, well, the, the international community did not act uh, with the uh, vigor that it needed. And, you know, and I think it's largely because that was the time when people were optimistic about China's direction. Everyone wanted to work with China. Everyone was making excuses for China. And so you ended up with a situation where, um, you know, World Health Organization and other bodies around the world just were not dealing with China in the way that uh, should have. And, and this is sort of a laxity, this optimism, um, this, um, I guess, really, it, it's naivete um, contributed to um, the way the Chinese, added, uh, Chinese officials have dealt with the world not just on diseases, but everything else. And were there also similar reports about the kind of uh, suppression of information back in the SARS outbreak that we've seen with COVID-19 and, and, and the way that you know, the medical community, even within China, was having to change what was being said, perhaps even destroy data and information that would have been helpful because of fear of reprisal from the Chinese Communist Party? Well, that's certainly the case, Buck, um, because medical practitioners weren't saying anything. And the reason why we learned about this was because Beijing reacted to this in its typical totalitarian fashion. It locked down uh, parts of China. Um, and so therefore, um, it became evident that there was a disease. But still, even when it was clear that there was an epidemic in China, um, there was a long period of time where Chinese officials were not talking to the international community about this. And actually, it took a, a Chinese virologist, uh, Zhang Nanshan, um, to actually speak out in public, and, and he was hailed as a hero. Gordon, stick around with us, if you will. We'll be back, uh, back with more on this in a second. Thank you, Buck. While SARS gave us a glimpse into the future of pandemics, it couldn't fully prepare us for what lay ahead. After the break, we'll bring this story full circle with COVID-19. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The world has been in pandemic mode for over 21 months now. Coronavirus disease continues to spread at a slow burn, and what started as 15 days to slow the spread here in America turned into intermittent lockdowns and government restrictions becoming a kind of new normal. An estimated 220 million people have been infected worldwide and 4.5 million are dead. COVID-19 has dominated our lives far longer than we thought it would. So what went wrong in the initial weeks of the Wuhan outbreak? Let's bring in Gordon Chang to discuss again here. Gordon, thanks for being here. Thank you, Buck. So on January 9th, 2020, the World Health Organization made its first statement regarding a cluster of pneumonia-like cases in Wuhan. Then two months later, on March 11th, they declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Here's what happened. In the past two weeks, the number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold. And the number of affected countries has tripled. We're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. So Gordon, what happened in that two-month period uh, in China when the virus had, after, had, had first popped up on the radar? January 9th, 2020 is an important date because as you point out, there was a World Health Organization statement that the disease was not transmissible human to human. And they said that was based on information from China. And then we have um, Director General Tedros's uh, tweet on January 14th saying the same thing. So what China was doing was propagating Beijing, what, what the World Health Organization was doing was propagating Beijing's narrative that this was not a communicable disease. But Chinese leaders knew no later than the second week of December that this was highly contagious. And for that period, until January 20 of 2020, um, they were telling the world, look, don't worry about this. Um, and so it was an active attempt to deceive the world. Now, Kofi, one thing that is important here is that senior doctors at the World Health Organization knew this was highly transmissible. Maria von Kirchhoff, who is an American doctor, she's a MERS specialist, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is closely related to um, COVID-19. When she first heard about this, she said, this is highly contagious. And yet the political leadership of the World Health Organization, this is Tedros and others, um, basically ignored what she was saying and propagated a narrative that they had to know was false. And that contributed to the spread of this disease beyond China's borders. How did China, in terms of its power structure, the Chinese Communist Party, 
and the propaganda organs of state media. Uh, do we know what, what, the, what was going on internally? I mean, how did they react internally and then externally to the world once it became clear that this was a highly transmissible virus and there was a big problem? Well, we know that they intentionally misled others. Um, we suspect that uh, Beijing knew about this. There have been some statements from um, municipal officials in Wuhan who basically said, you know, we told Beijing what was going on, um, but we were not allowed to talk to anybody because of um, instructions from the center, in other words, from, from Beijing. So it was a very slow uh, moving um, response on the part of China. But Chinese leaders had to know what was going on. Um, it was very clear that Wuhan was the epicenter of a very contagious disease. So really what you've got is um, Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, while he was deceiving the world, he is also locking down Wuhan and surrounding cities and other parts of China. And he was at the same time, Buck, pressuring other countries not to impose travel restrictions and quarantines on arrivals from China which means he had to know that he was spreading this disease beyond China's borders. Um, you know, we don't know exactly what was going on in his mind, but if after having seen what the disease did to cripple China, if he wanted to level the playing field by spreading the disease elsewhere, he would have done exactly what he did, which means that I believe that this was the first time that one nation has attacked all the others, and those 4.7 million people who have died outside of China, I think each one of those is a murder. Gordon, what can you tell us about the timeline with regard to the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology and the lab leak theory and what we were told in the beginning versus what we've learned since then? Well, the timeline probably stretches back to August of 2019 because there's a Harvard Medical School study that analyzes satellite imagery, which noticed that the parking lots of hospitals in Wuhan were filling up in August, and that was unusual. So clearly something was happening. Now, um, if you look at the uh, House Minority Report on COVID-19, they talk about incidents in October and November 2019. Um, and so clearly something occurred in that time frame. Now, that coincides with the military games which were held in Wuhan, which was a factor in spreading this disease. Um, so clearly, um, Chinese officials knew for quite some time. But by at least the second week in December, it was painfully obvious that there was a contagious disease and that people in Wuhan were getting it from person to person because there was no other explanation for the spread of the disease. So Chinese leaders, you know, you can pick your date. You can go back to August, you can go to October, you can go to November or December. But clearly Chinese leaders knew what was going on. What can you tell us about the extent of some of the early Chinese lockdown measures? This notion of lockdown was something that had been rejected in American and Western medical literature for a long time in terms of how to respond to a pandemic. But China seemed to be the first country to engage in some form of lockdown that was replicated elsewhere. How extensive was it? How severe was it in the early days in China? Yeah, the, the lockdowns in Wuhan, um, which were the first ones, replicated the lockdowns that uh, occurred in China during the SARS epidemic starting in 2002. In Wuhan, they were um, brutally enforced. So people being sealed inside their apartments, for instance. And you know, there's a lot of controversy over lockdowns. Um, but by locking down Wuhan, 
Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, was telling the world that he thought these were effective. So when he was telling other countries to accept arrivals from China, um, that shows that he deliberately spread this disease. Um, but those lockdowns were, uh, you know, I don't know if they were effective. A lot of people say that they help spread the disease uh, for various reasons when you start looking at the transmissions. Mm -hmm. it's We're going to have to work this out and it's going to take some time. But clearly they were not as effective as Xi Jinping thought they were. And what can we make of the the total when it comes to cases and fatalities from this virus in China uh, up to date? Are, are they, do we just know they're dramatically understated? Do we have some sense of what the factor is? I mean, how much lying is still going on when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party and how it has uh, gauged its own response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, both the number of cases and the number of fatalities in China are grossly understated. People talk about a factor of 10 in Wuhan alone. You know, there's that famous incident about the number of funeral urns um, that were delivered to crematoria in Wuhan. Um, and they were, um, that's a factor of 10 right there. Um, we don't know about other um, municipalities, um, but clearly the Communist Party has made the number of cases and the number of fatalities central to their arguments about the legitimacy of the Communist Party and the effectiveness of its rule because um, their propaganda narratives have been essentially that the West has handled this, and, and the United States in particular, have handled this so poorly because there's so many cases and fatalities uh, elsewhere. And they point to their own low numbers showing how effective they were in dealing with the disease. So this has become a matter of legitimacy of Communist Party uh, rule, which means that we will uh, not find out until the Communist Party falls or until there's a whistleblower. And that's entirely possible because there have already been some Chinese whistleblowers um, who have told us information that Beijing did not want us to hear. Gordon, do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic and China's role in it has changed the relationship that Xi Jinping, the Chinese Communist Party, has with the world uh, irreparably forever? I, I think so. And the reason is that, um, for instance, Australia um, was pressing China for um, an independent investigation. Um, Beijing overreacted. Um, that has created all sorts of friction between Canberra and Beijing. That has led to, for instance, this security pact, AUKUS, um, Australia, UK, US. Beijing has overreacted to the formation of that pact. This has created a dynamic. And of course, people around the world sense that Beijing did not adhere to its responsibilities um, when it was dealing with the rest of the world on COVID-19. Of course, not everyone agrees with me that this was murderous, but as we uh, continue on, as more and more information comes out, more and more people are seeing a darker side to China's response. And by the way, the hero of SARS, Zhang Nanshan, he actually was helping to um, Beijing spread the narrative that this was not a big deal because he was the one in January 20 who announced that there were community trans uh, transmissions. He was saying this was in Guangdong province where he should have been talking about Wuhan. He said there were only three or four, if I remember correctly. So this hero became a villain who helped spread this disease. Gordon, appreciate your expertise as always. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you, Buck. That's all the time we have for this special edition of Hold the Line. I'd like to thank my guests, John Aberth, John Berry, and Gordon Chang for sharing their expertise with us. 
Thanks for being here, and as always, shields high. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.